Hello, misfits. This is Kate. And this is Kevin. Welcome to Horrorwood. Before we get into it, we have three, three. new Patronians this Trace. week. The, that is the most that we have ever had, and we're like freaking out. That's so amazing. Thank you all. Thank you so, so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here come the shout outs. Yes. First, we've got Jeff. Jeff. Jeff's last name was not on his like profile, sure. so I'm not sure he wants it said. That's okay. But Jeff who is also a Chicagoan. Hey, Jeff. Uh, I did see that on your profile. Um, Thank you so much. You're one of our newest Misfit Murderinos. (laughs) Next, we've got Luke Harrison. Uh Uh-oh. Luke Harrison, this is your shout-out. Luke Harrison, thank you so much. Thanks, Luke. We really, really, really appreciate it. And lastly, but not leastly... Lindsay! Jensen. Jensen. Yes. I forgot it again. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, well, I've got it written in front of me. That's why I know all the names. Yay, Lindsay <laughs> Jensen. Lindsay, thank you so much. Um, truly, we appreciate all of you. It means so much. And we appreciate all of the non-paid listeners, too. Yeah, of course. We Everybody. are so happy you're here. And I think today's episode is going to be kind of a fun one. Yay. Like, there's some serious stuff, but also... Some really cool stuff. Fun, fun. We are talking about the comedy the store. The comedy store in L.A. In L.A., yes. Oh. The OG. Ooh. I will say content warning sure. uh, for suicide and abortions in this episode. So if those are subjects that you would rather not hear about, uh, go ahead and skip this one. But let's get into it. Before you start, yes. I was in, in the bathroom, and you feel free to cut this because it's awful, but I was like, <laughs> okay. I was thinking of things in my mind, and I was like thinking about like, usually where you think women's rights and abortions, and I just kind of yelled as I was like brushing my teeth, abortions for all! Oh. I think everyone should have the right to an abortion. Oh, well, absolutely. And Everyone should also have the right to see your shirt because it says good vibes and that's a great oh, color on you. Thank you. You're welcome. I don't feel like, I feel like the shirt is masking. I can like tell. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. I'm sensing everything that's happening underneath you. Yeah. And uh, you know what? We're here for you. Thank you, Kate. We, as in myself and all of the misfits <laughs> listening. You guys, it's been a challenging week. Yeah, it's a stressful time for all. But yeah, let's uh, let's, let's get, get into, into this. It. It's been dubbed the Mecca of Comedy. Founded on April 7th, 1972, the Comedy Store, located at 8433 West Sunset Boulevard, became the first all-stand-up comedy nightclub in the world. Oh, shit. So yeah. it's like the first comedy club? Well, similar clubs existed, most notably the Improvisation in New York. Okay. But... 
not solely for stand-up. For stand-up. They'd have like musical acts and stuff too. So the Comedy Store was the first one devoted entirely to stand-up comedy, hmm. which is really cool. That's amazing. It's where some of the most famous comedians got their start before becoming household names, such as Richard Pryor, Robin Williams, Andy Kaufman, Whoopi Goldberg, Jay Leno, David Letterman, the list goes on and on. It's also what Mark Marin referred to as, quote, a dark temple of fear and pain that to this day I believe is built over one of the gates to hell. So... <laughs> That's, comedy that's, <laughs> that's like the total opposite of, of like what you'd think that place would represent it sure is but having worked in a comedy club for a year mm-hmm. i kind of understand where where that person's coming from okay that person mark Marin, yes of the wtf podcast yes yes uh, the building itself didn't start out as the comedy club. It actually has much darker origins involving the mob, illegal abortions, and murder. Because when you have the mob, you have murder. It was first known as Club Seville, a swanky nightclub that opened on New Year's Eve 1935 and featured a glass dance floor with a pool underneath that had live fish in it. So you'd be dancing on top of water with little fishies swimming around. Ooh, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, most people did not like it. Did people like? I mean, did they take care of it? Because I just imagine like, <laughs> like dead fish, like just everywhere. dead fish floating, oh, and the God. water turns green with algae. Ew. Well, it didn't last long because uh-huh. <laughs> because it broke, and well, that's what people were afraid of. They were like, um, "There's a lot of people dancing on this, yeah. and this sucker's gonna shatter at any." I moment. wouldn't trust glass in the 30s. No, and. <laughs> Women didn't like the idea of fish eyes staring up their skirts. And they were like, I'm feeling exposed. Oh, uh, shut up. Come on. I think I would, would you- actually <laughs> feel the same. I would be Just I knowing- would be squatted over the fi- being like, look at this, fishies. Oh my god. I would feel like I there there were eyes staring. I mean, they're fish. Up at they're me. not knowing what they're But they're like living that. beings, That's Kevin. That's true. I get it. I dance shirtless in front of cats in my room, so. Well, that's that's a story for you and you alone. I don't think so. I think it should be told. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Because of these concerns, Club Seville was short-lived and briefly became a restaurant before Billy Wilkerson bought it and transformed it into Ciro's. William, or Billy, Wilkerson was a real estate developer as well as the founder of The Hollywood Reporter, which is a renowned magazine that focuses on the entertainment industry. Just a little background on Billy. Prior to founding The Hollywood Reporter, Billy was a film producer. And according to his son, his dream in life was to build and own his own film studio. He had previously worked as the district manager at Universal Pictures, but despite his experience, he found it impossible to get any support from any of the studio bigwigs to help him realize his dream. According to his son, the studio heads were kind of like a club that, for whatever reason, refused to allow Billy admission. After World War II, there was all this hysteria regarding communism in Eastern Europe. Mm. So Billy used this as an opportunity to get back at the studio owners that had rejected him. He decided the way to hurt the studios was to hurt the creative people they hired. So he started a column in The Hollywood Reporter that became known as Billy's List, 
where he started naming actors, writers, directors, and calling them communists. Okay, that's not great. This eventually snowballed into McCarthyism. I was going to say the Red Scare. The Red Scare. Careers were ruined. People lost their livelihoods overnight. And all because a man was butthurt that he was having trouble getting support to build his own studio. Oh, fuck you, Billy. Prior to opening Ciro's in 1940, Billy already ran a few other successful establishments on the Sunset Strip. At the time... The Sunset Strip was unincorporated. I talked about this in the episode of The Viper Room. Mm, mm-hmm. The Sunset Strip wasn't incorporated until 1984, which feels like yesterday. Was it just like a lawless land yes, of terror? Yes, it was. That's exactly what it was. Because prior to its incorporation, it didn't fall under the jurisdiction of the LAPD. So people were getting wild and loose with basically no repercussions. Give me a couple of drinks and a baseball bat and let me at it. What are you doing with the bat? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Whatever you want, I guess. Just hitting cars (laughs) with a really pretty dress on. Yes. It was also an attractive location for businesses. Businesses. Uh, Business. I got to do my business up in here. For businesses because they didn't have to pay city taxes. Uh, Shit. I mean, good deal. Yeah. Gambling was a big attraction on the Strip because it was illegal to gamble in the city of Los Angeles, but those rules didn't apply to the Strip. Didn't apply in the Strip. And during Prohibition, there were speakeasies where alcohol was served. It was just like the playground. Side note, there were numerous pedestrian tunnels built underground in L.A. in the 1920s and 30s. Because that's when the automobile rose in popularity, which produced a safety hazard to children who crossed the streets on their way to school. So the majority of these tunnels are built near schools so children could walk through them and avoid the traffic above ground. But really, they made a great way for people to run alcohol during Prohibition, and mobsters used them for anything and everything. Mm-hmm. They were also a great way for celebrities to pass from one establishment to another. So the tunnels kind of took on a whole other life form from what their initial purpose was. And as crime and homelessness grew in the various tunnels, the majority of them were closed off. But there are still some in use. Tunnels being used? Tunnels being used. <laughs> <laughs> like by the public or by like... Yeah, they're... Oh, okay. um, there is one uh, in Eagle Rock, and I it only jumped out at me because I used to live in Eagle Rock, mm. that is uh, a tunnel connecting whatever area, I think of like Colorado Boulevard, to a school. So there were pictures online of like kids walking through the tunnel to get to school. It's kind of oh, wild. It's nice that they don't have to worry about getting hit by cars. It is. I just hope they don't have to worry about like other nefarious activity happening that in those tunnels. in the tunnels. Yeah. The tunnels. Billy opened a Cafe Trocadero down the street from where Ciro's would eventually be. Since Billy owned The Hollywood Reporter, movie stars and PR agents and gossip columnists flocked to the truck because it was a place to see and be seen. And stars wanted their picture in The Hollywood Reporter. So he kind of like... I mean, what he did kind of worked. I mean, that's the He's thing. He's like, I'm going to either put... You either worship me and... and Go with me and come to my clubs, mm-hmm. or I'm going to put you on a communist list. Exactly. Like what he, a dick. He was kind of a dick. Uh, he was also a compulsive gambler, so he spent most of his time in the back room of the club playing high-stakes poker with some of the biggest titans in the movie industry, like Sam Goldwyn, the G and MGM. 
Daryl Zanuck, who co-founded 20th Century Pictures, which became 20th Century Fox. And when I say Billy owned these places, yes, he owned them, but really the mob was running the Sunset Strip. Mobsters like Johnny Roselli and Tony Cornero were regulars at the truck, and Billy became good friends with them and other gangsters like Bugsy Siegel and Nola Hahn. Mickey Cohen was also a frequent guest. No surprise there because he literally comes up in half the episodes we do. Billy was a smart guy. He was shady and set off the Red Scare in Hollywood, but he was a smart guy. He knew being friends with the mob could afford him certain protections because the mob had ties to the LAPD. So if Billy got into any trouble, like he pissed off the wrong person in a poker game or if shit went down at any of the businesses he owned, he'd pay the mob and the mob would take care of things. Hmm. In 1937 or 38, just a few years after opening Cafe Trocadero, Billy decided he was just tired of running the place. He got bored of it. Plus, he was paying a lot of money to the mob and losing a lot of money gambling, so he was trying to figure out a way to sell the place and get some cash. Fair enough. He asked one of his gangster friends, Nola Han, for ideas. And Han was like, um, maybe the place could burn down and maybe I could help make that happen. Shortly after, a mysterious fire started in the kitchen and destroyed the majority of the club, and Billy sold it. But Billy wasn't ready to walk away from the nightclub life for good. And after buying the building that once housed Club Seville, he opened Ciro's at the end of January 1940. As with the truck, Ciro's became the place for Hollywood's elite. Stars were hoping to have their picture taken and appear in The Hollywood Reporter, Think of the biggest names of that era. They were all regulars at Ciro's. Marilyn Monroe, Clark Gable, Ginger Rogers, Frank Sinatra, Humphrey Bogart, James Dean, Ava Gardner. It goes on and on. There was a spotlight at the entrance welcoming each high-profile guest. There was a large bandstand inside for performances by entertainers like Nat King Cole and Sammy Davis Jr., at the request of the mob, there was a secret gambling room. There was also a secret, quote-unquote, women's parlor, which was, I guess, a place where people would go to swap celebrity gossip, and then those stories would end up in The Hollywood Reporter. I think we need to bring this back. Let's. I think we need, uh, like, a segment that's, like, women's parlor <gasps> corner. Yes. You know, where we sit around with, with fake cigarettes and talk about the media. And I the love secrets. it. <laughs> the secrets and the scandals. <laughs> and the lies. <laughs> also, every table in this place had a phone jack installed so that PR agents and other clientele could make important calls. Oh my God, imagine those phone calls. So schmancy. Get him the money. No. Uh, okay. I imagine that's what they were. They were quick, five seconds. Turns out that is verbatim what it was. <laughs> Kevin, great job. I'm sorry. This is just. It's that shirt. <laughs> the vibes. The vibes. Got weird. Not good. Bugsy Siegel loved that's Ciro's. Such a, that's such a like gangster name. You know well, I mean, what I mean, he's a gangster. I know. Okay. But like Bugsy. 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 He loved it so much to the point that in 1941, when he was in jail awaiting trial for murder, yeah. he insisted that the club have their food delivered to his cell. Did they do that? Yeah. It's the mob. You're going to do what the mob does. 
with a mob request. I, if I was in jail, I'd be like, someone get me Burger King, and then I'd get murdered. Probably. Ciro's was one of the most popular spots on the Strip. It seemed like everything happened there. If an argument occurred, people would start throwing glasses of champagne at one another. Mickey Cohen was shot out right outside. Celebrities would meet up with their lovers who they were clearly having an affair with. Sheila Weller, who wrote Dancing at Ciro's and was the niece of the club's eventual owner, essentially grew up at Ciro's. It was the family business. And she did an interview with NPR back in 2003 where she talks about some of the things that went down. Mm-hmm. She said her uncle would have to confer each night with the maitre d' about where certain celebrities were going to sit. Like Cary Grant couldn't be near Peter Lawford, otherwise they'd get into a fight. They couldn't let Howard Hughes send flowers to Elizabeth Taylor because she was across the street at another club watching Vic Damone, who she had a crush on. And then Howard was going to be stood up so he couldn't know. And they had to figure out how to prevent Frank Sinatra from getting into yet another fist fight because there was a three-strike rule about fist fights. It was a wild time. It sounds awful. It sounds amazing. <laughs> Jesus. These people are out of control. Out of control. Just a couple of years after opening, Billy Wilkerson got bored again and was like, man, I'd really like to sell this place. And once again, he turned to his gangster friend Nola Han for help. And the weirdest thing happened. It burned down. A mysterious fire broke out, which wrecked Ciro's and destroyed two of the exterior walls. At which point, Billy sold the club to his right-hand man, Herman Hover. So, can I ask a question? Like, what is burning the building having to do with the sale? I think he's able to, like, collect on some Collect money insurance and, and then, then sell like, it for cheap or I think something? So, yeah. Okay. Herman kept the place popping, and it remained a Hollywood hotspot for several years. But like Billy, Herman had to pay money to the mob in order to keep them happy and keep the business afloat. It's said that Mickey Cohen had an office on the second floor of Ciro's where he would conduct some of his mobster business. And we're about to get into some of the notorious stuff that went down Mm. involving the mob at this building, which many believe is what led to the comedy store being haunted. Oh, yeah. And most of the articles I found about it said things like, rumor has it or it's believed that you know blah 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 like there was nothing truly concrete and most of the sites these articles are on are not big newspapers like the la times Mm -hmm. so i was like did this stuff really happen or is this just lore but then i found an article about it from the los angeles public library and i believe the library so here we go we should all believe libraries yes Mickey Cohen had holes drilled into the walls so he could see who was coming and going. And if you betrayed the mob in any way, like maybe you couldn't pay your gambling debts or you were flirting with another gangster's girlfriend, you were sent upstairs to Mickey's office. And you did not want to get sent upstairs to Mickey's office. Sometimes Mickey would take care of you himself. There was a hole in the wall along the stairwell perfectly sized for his gun. And if you had crossed him, he would shoot you through that hole before you ever made it to his office. That hole is still there at the comedy store. At least it was when Ghost Adventures went there to investigate. And we're going to talk about that episode in a bit. Gross. There are some uh, celebrities that have interesting stories to tell about the place that are on the episode, which is why I'm bringing it up. But sometimes, rather than shooting you himself, he would have his henchmen take care of things. You'd be led down to the basement of the club, where you would be beaten, tortured, and eventually killed. 
all while the hottest of the hottest celebrities are right above you upstairs dancing and laughing and having oral sex under the tables because yes that happened the basement was also the site of a number of illegal abortions mickey cohen hired a nurse question mark to perform the procedure often on women who did not want an abortion such as girlfriends of gangsters who were ordered by the mob to terminate the pregnancy. Sex workers and showgirls would also use the services of Ciro's if they wanted to end their pregnancies. I can't even imagine how scary and painful that must have been going into a dark, dank basement of a club for this major medical procedure. Also, just the emotional toll of that, especially because some of the women didn't want an abortion. I mean, it's emotional no matter what. And then you add the layer of like, you're being forced to do it. According to Exemplar.com's article, Hollywood Hauntings, the Comedy Store, women would just be screaming on the table. But of course, none of the movie stars above heard anything because they're dancing to music and partying it up. So just that juxtaposition it's wild. No surprise here due to the unsterile conditions and the fact that the nurse might not have been exactly qualified to perform the abortion, a number of women died during the procedure. One of these women was the girlfriend of a mobster, and in retaliation, it's rumored that the mob then killed the nurse. I couldn't find confirmation of this, but it does seem very plausible. All those bodies have to go somewhere. And it's believed the mob buried their victims underneath the basement floor of the club. You're doing a lot of facial reactions, but I'm like, I don't know if like if he's into this or not. No, I'm very into oh, okay. it. I'm just listening. Okay. In addition to the building that housed Ciro's, there was a huge house behind it known as Crest Hill that is built into the side of the hill and looks out over Ciro's and Sunset Boulevard. Tom Wilson, an actor who most people would probably know as Biff from Back to the Future, claims that during his comedy store days, he spoke with an old man who lived a little further up the hill. And that man told him that the mob used to use that house for gambling and whatever debauchery they wanted to get up to. The man also said the mob paid him to let one of their guys sit at his house and be a lookout. And if it looked like cops were coming to raid the place, he'd call up Crest Hill so they could hide anything incriminating. In an article from 2015 on BuzzFeed, which I'll link, it says that the mob also used Crest Hill as a place to torture people. And it was a place where movie stars would wander to after the party at Ciro's had died down. Though when asked about the house, celebrities from that era, including Jerry Lewis and Debbie Reynolds, remember this was 2015, so they were still alive at the mm -hmm. time, claimed they either didn't remember the house or they chose not to comment. Mm. So I don't know. But rumor has it that a secret tunnel connected the basement of Crest Hill to the basement of Ciro's. David Peisner, I think that's how you say it, is the author of this BuzzFeed article, and he checked out the basement of Crest Hill. He said there is a trapped door, or a trap door in the floor of the basement with a stepladder that goes down into a cellar. But when he was there, it was dark, he couldn't really see anything, so he had a real estate agent come and check it out. And the agent said there was a crawl space down there filled with cobwebs, but he didn't think it was a tunnel. But I don't know. So nobody really went and fully explored this thing? Nope. nope. What the fuck? When Ghost Adventures investigated the basement of the comedy store, they found a place in the wall that appears to be a tunnel that was covered up. 
So that it probably connected. Just saying. Come on, people. Let's look at it. God, <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. By the late 1950s, the glitz of the Sunset Strip began to fade. A new sheriff had been appointed who was all about cleaning up the Strip's reputation and making it a lot less fun. Mm-hmm. Plus, it was around this time that Vegas was starting to pop off, so a lot of celebrities and mobsters were traveling to Nevada to party. Herman Hoover ended up filing for bankruptcy and closing the club in 1959. Okay. Just a side note, About Herman Hover, his daughter Ellen was one of serial killer Rodney Alcala's murder victims. Oh, God. Ellen Hover. She was killed in 1977. That's awful. After Ciro's closed, the club became a rock club in 1965. Ike and Tina Turner performed there, along with Jimi Hendrix. The birds got their start there. It then a lot went, of people. Yeah. It then went through several more iterations until 1972, when Sammy Shore, the opening stand-up act for Elvis Presley, wanted a place where he could work out new routines when he wasn't on the road. I didn't realize that Elvis had stand-up. I didn't either. Him. Isn't that wild? That's crazy. It reminds me of when uh, Madonna had Amy Schumer opening for her. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, weird. He, along with his wife Mitzi and comedy writer Rudy DeLuca, leased the space and founded the Comedy Store on April 7th, 1972, making it the first all-stand-up comedy nightclub in the world, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Mm-hmm. There's some discrepancy about whether it was the three of them or just Sammy or Sammy and Rudy, but my thought is that all three had their hand in founding it. The timing was serendipitous because that same year, Johnny Carson moved his Tonight Show from New York City to Burbank, and a flock of young comedians headed west as well in the hopes of appearing on Carson's show. So the comedy store gave them the perfect place to work on their material. Missy was the one who came up with the name, and it's actually a play on The Candy Store, which was a nightclub in Beverly Hills that existed at the same time. I didn't realize that. The Candy Store. That sounds like a club you would like to go to. I want to go to The Candy Store. Sounds like a naughty club. I bet it is. Because Sammy was on the road a lot, Mitzi was the one taking charge of the day-to-day operations, scheduling the comics, and essentially running the place. Sammy wasn't so much into the business side of things. He just liked having a place to perform. So in 1974, when Sammy and Mitzi divorced, she insisted that he turn the business over to her, which he did as a way to reduce his alimony payments. Mm. By 1976, Mitzi was able to purchase the building, which also included Crest Hill, the house behind it. She also opened up other comedy stores where she would send talent to work on their material before putting them on the big stage at the location on Sunset. Where were the other comedy stores? So were, they, were, were they just in town? or were One they... was in Westwood. Okay. Uh, the other one was in La Jolla, which is still there. Okay. They were kind of like all over. Sure. Mitzi had a keen eye for talent and helped launch the careers of Robin Williams, Jay Leno, David Letterman, Richard Pryor, and numerous others. In 1974, David Letterman had decided to give up on an entertainment career, and he planned to go back to Indianapolis, where he's from. But Mitzi convinced him to stay. She was like, you were going to go so far in your career. Why would you leave? What are you thinking? There was also an open mic night, which is actually how Roseanne Barr was discovered. After performing there, Johnny Carson invited her on his show. Thumbs down. Thumbs down to Roseanne Barr. And that was the thing. Comics longed to be invited on The Tonight Show. If you were a comic and it was your first time on The Tonight Show and Johnny Carson invited you over to the couch after your set, you were guaranteed to become a star. Wow, I didn't know that. 
That was the holy grail, getting the wave from Carson to sit on the couch. The first comic to receive this honor was Freddie Prinze in 1973. He was the first to get the wave after his first appearance on the show, and he was only 19 years old. He was from New York and had performed at the Improv there, and then after graduating high school, he moved to L.A., performed at the Comedy Store, got asked to be on Carson, boom. The very next day after his Tonight Show appearance, a producer called offering him the role of Chico in the TV show Chico and the Man. He was an instant star and the first real breakout of the Comedy Store, but sadly he would also be its first casualty. Freddie was a drug addict and had been heavily addicted to cocaine since he was 16 and was buying quaaludes by the hundreds. He also had a habit of playing Russian roulette and would do so in front of his friends. They said he had an obsession with death. And because of his heavy drug use, he suffered from cocaine psychosis, which I didn't even know was a thing before I researched this. It can cause like hallucinations and paranoia. He thought his friends were spies and he thought his phone line was bugged and... He tried to kill John Travolta with a crossbow. Jesus Christ. What? But that's another story for another time. What? I think I might do a full episode on him at some point, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. Eventually, it all became too much for Freddie. The drugs, the fame, the money, it all happened at such a young age. He was also depressed because he was going through a divorce, and he knew it meant he might be separated from his son, Freddie Freddie Prince Jr. Oh, you were so excited about that. I was waiting, Kate. (laughs) There it is. Waiting. So at the end of January 1977, while his TV show was still a hit, he wrote a suicide note, called a few loved ones to say goodbye, then shot himself in the head. Comedian Polly Shore, who was one of Mitzi's four children, Mm -hmm. told USA Today that his mom thought of Freddie as one of her kids and was really affected by his death. Polly said it was a really dark time. Mitzi was kind of like a den mother for young up-and-comers. She was influential in getting industry execs to come to the store to check out new comics. She had a talent for nurturing their careers, but at the same time, she was really tough on them. If she didn't think you were good, she was blunt in letting you know. Everyone there sort of orbited around Mitzi. She was the queen bee. Comics were scared of her, but they also wanted to to impress her. Mm -hmm. She had created what she referred to as a comedy college, where she would help new comics coming in, and then as they began having more success, they would help mentor the next group of comics coming in. It was considered an artist colony. But the problem with running the business like it was a school is that students don't get paid to go to school. No. None of the comedians were getting paid, yet they were the reason the comedy store was in business. Mm -hmm. And Mitzi's argument was, well, I'm giving you exposure, I'm bringing in talent agents and scouts from The Tonight Show, what more could you possibly want? Money. Exactly. They were like, we want to be able to pay for gas and food. Yeah. Mitzi was making a fortune because she was the sole owner of the place and only paid the wait staff. All the profits went right into her pocket. According to Jay Leno, she was making a couple hundred grand a week. Like $200,000 a week in nineteen in the 1970s. So she was just really greedy. Sounds like it. Yeah. Mitzi opened a second, larger room inside the comedy store with the intent of having her more seasoned comic friends perform there, again, for free. 
Because when she was still with her ex, Sammy, and he was opening for Elvis, Mitzi was meeting and befriending all the big comedians of Vegas, including Don Rickles, Jerry Lewis, Buddy Hackett. So she thought she could get them to perform at the comedy store as a way to bring in even more people and more money. But her famous friends refused because they were like, why would we perform for free at the comedy store when we're already headlining in Vegas? So Mitzi thought, well, what do I do now? I just spent 50 grand on this new bigger room and I can't get anyone to perform in it. And a couple of her friends were like, you have all these amazing comics right here who could certainly handle a larger audience. Why not use them? So she selected a handful of comics from the store that she deemed good enough to perform in this new room called the main room, but she still didn't pay them. The comics she chose were like, all right, if the main room is supposed to be the more seasoned or professional comics, then we should be getting paid. Mm-hmm. It took a few months, but finally Mitzi was like, oh, all right, I guess I'll pay the performers in the main room. At that point, all the comics who performed in the other space known as the original room were like, hold on. Why do they get paid and we don't? Exactly. They're like, if they're going to get money, we should get money. Right. But Mitzi said, absolutely not. This is where I draw the line. You'll keep working for free. And so began the comedy store strike of 1979. Well, there you go. Yeah. Up until this point, Mitzi's comics were terrified of going up against her because she was the gatekeeper for their careers. But they'd had enough. I mean, that's fair. Like, if you, I mean, if she's so feared by all these people, the only way to combat that is to band together. Exactly. And be like, okay, bitch, listen. You need to pay us. Exactly. You're making bank, so fuck you. She was becoming a multimillionaire. Jesus Christ. The strike was led by Jay Leno and David Letterman. Oh, nice. Yes. <laughs> Who were good friends at that time. Oh, um, before the... Before the feud. Feud in the Tonight Shows. Yes. Along with comedian Tom Dreesen, the three of them kind of headed things up. Tom told Mitzi that a few months prior, on New Year's Eve... He'd run into a comic after finishing a set. And this comic was like, oh, my God, it went great. I killed. And then asked Tom if he could borrow $5 so he could get breakfast. When Tom told Mitzi that, she said, quote, well, he should get a goddamn job. To which Tom replied, he has a job. He worked for you on New Year's Eve. Still, Mitzi refused to pay her performers. She's awful. So in March of 79, the comics began picketing outside the comedy store. Mitzi and her most loyal followers crossed the picket line and kept the shows going. But the majority of the regulars there refused to work. David Letterman was doing his first guest hosting of The Tonight Show. And as soon as he was done, he went to the store and joined the picket line. Mitzi felt betrayed because she had taken David under her wing and was the one who convinced him to stay in L.A. and not go back to Indiana. So she called him that night and expressed how upset she was that he was striking. And Letterman already had some cash in the bank because he was quickly making a name for himself. Mm -hmm. But he said, for these other guys, this was it. This was sustenance. So when Mitzi was crying to him over the phone, he told her, those comedians are my friends and they'll be my friends for the rest of my life. Mm. To which she replied, I'm sorry to hear that, David. Ooh. Mitzi tried compromising with the performers, offering to pay them $25 a set, but only on weekends. Monday through Friday, they'd still be working for free. This prompted a few of the comics, one of which was Gary Shandling, to break the strike and cross the line. Shandling already had success as a writer for sitcoms, so he wasn't living in poverty like the majority of these comics were. 
and he came from a family who was anti-union. So he saw crossing the line as an opportunity to get into Mitzi's good graces. Because prior to the strike, Mitzi didn't think Gary was good enough to be one of the regular performers. But of course, once he showed his loyalty to her by crossing the line, she rewarded him with regular stage time. Six weeks into the strike, tensions were running high. Then one night, one of the anti-strikers drove his car through the picket line. Thankfully, no one was seriously hurt, but Jay Leno ended up on the ground. He wasn't actually hurt, but he pretended to be because he wanted to make a scene and send a message to Mitzi like, hey, you need to do something because it's getting bad. He was even taken to the hospital in an ambulance. And it worked because as soon as Mitzi found out Leno had been knocked to the ground and taken to the hospital, she called up Tom Dreesen and said, let's settle this thing right now. Interesting because she could have just done that to begin with. Exactly. The strike ended with Mitzi agreeing to allow her comics to file as independent contractors and pay them $25 a set regardless of the day of the week. All seemed well and good. Those who had picketed felt like they'd won. But Mitzi, she held grudges. Those who had picketed essentially had a target on their back now, and Mitzi would not give them stage time. Retaliation. One of these comics was Steve Lebetkin. Steve was devastated that Mitzi wouldn't give him stage time, not only because he wanted to work, but also because prior to the strike, he and Mitzi had reportedly been close friends. Mm -hmm. Steve was struggling both financially and mentally, and a lot of his depression stemmed from living in poverty. He had taken a leadership role in the strike demanding fair compensation and wrote notes saying things like, refuse to be divided and conquered, open up the industry, then honor Mitzi for starting it. That was the thing. The comics still felt gratitude toward her for the opportunities she gave them, but they wanted pay. Steve had begun seeing a psychiatrist, but the day after his second session, he went up to the roof of the 14-story Hyatt Hotel, which was right next door to the comedy store, and he jumped, landing on the store's parking ramp below. A note found on his person read, My name is Steve Lubetkin. Call Susan Evans, which was his girlfriend at the mm-hmm. time. I used to work at the comedy store. Maybe this will help to bring about fairness. Then addressed his loved one saying, no revenge, please. All my love. Wow. This was a turning point for the comedy store. Other comedy clubs were popping up all over the country paying their performers. Mitzi wanted to reward her most loyal followers and give them a reason to stay in town rather than going to another city where they might get paid more. So she opened up Crest Hill, the house behind the store, and allowed some of them to live in it rent-free. And with a new decade came a new wave of comics. This was the era of Andrew Dice Clay, Sam Kinison, Yakov Smirnoff, all of whom at some point or another moved into Crest Hill. Jim Carrey even lived in a closet there for a while. It basically turned into a frat house. There was so much cocaine. Like, so much cocaine. Comics were doing cocaine openly at the comedy store. Coke was everywhere. Robin Williams, Andy Kaufman, Rod Stewart, they would all come by Crest Hill just to get cocaine. Sam Kinison and Andrew Dice Clay, who went by Dice, started out as great friends. But Dice wasn't into drugs and staying up late, and Sam was all about that life. Sam wasn't technically supposed to be living at Crest Hill. He hadn't been approved by Mitzi. So when Dice had had enough of Sam's rock and roll ways and leaving dirty dishes everywhere, doing drugs at all hours of the night... Dice went to Mitzi and ratted him out. Mitzi kicked Sam out of the house, and he never forgave Dice for this. Wow. 
Shortly after Dice moved out, Mitzi allowed Sam to move back in, and he basically ruled the house at that point. Mm-hmm. Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, he came up in our last episode about Home Alone, and here he is again. Hey, Mark. He moved into Crest Hill in 1987 and began his run at the comedy store as a doorman. He did a lot of drugs with Sam Kinison, calling it, quote, the most disturbing and mentally destructive eight months of my life. Everything's just covered in a light dusting of cocaine. I mean, it kind of was. So I didn't put this in my notes, but there's a story about Yakov Smirnov, who was kind of naive and he didn't do any drugs or anything. And he said he thought it was weird how he'd wake up in the mornings and find that his roommates had taken the mirror off the wall and then eaten powdered donuts over it. He was like, why That's you- so cute. He was like, why are you guys eating powdered donuts? I, oh my God. I just imagine like, yes. They were like, yes, of course. I don't know. We just love to watch ourselves eat donuts. It's a new thing that we're all doing. <laughs> I just thought that was really funny. Oh. I wonder why people do cocaine off of mirrors. Do you I, know? I know nothing about cocaine. <laughs> Kate, tell me about your days. Do, no, I'm kidding. All my all my <laughs> drug use. Your drug days. <laughs> Kate was at the comedy store in the 80s. I was the comedy <laughs> store in the 80s. <laughs> it's Mitzi. <sighs> is she dead now? She is. Okay. One night, Sam got into an argument with some guys, so he threw a drink in the guy's face and started hitting him. Oh. And then he picked the guy up and dangled him over the balcony upside down. Yeah, you can't do that. Yet the guy refused to leave, which I would be like... <laughs> I would be like, I'm going to go home I'm now. like, I'm out. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> he refused to go, so Mark Marin was like, just stay in my room till Sam cools off. Sam reacted to this by peeing on Mark's bed. Apparently, he liked to pee on a lot of people's beds, and he liked to pee on people. Mark had had enough. And he felt like he was losing his mind. He wasn't sleeping. He said he started hearing voices in his head. Oh, my God. It sounds like he was getting the paranoia similar to what Freddie Prinze had. Right. Like that Mm drug-induced psychosis. A few days later, he met his drug dealer in the comedy store's parking lot, and he had a breakdown. Wow. And his dealer suggested he get out of town. And Mark said, if the drug dealer is telling you to leave, it's time to leave. It's time to go. (laughs) Yeah. Short, Get your mind right. Shortly after Mark moved out, Mitzi had also had enough. Sam and his friends had destroyed the place, and Mitzi kicked everyone out. Wow. She turned it into a halfway house for comics who were trying to get sober. It only lasted maybe a year or two before Mitzi closed the halfway house, and her son, Polly Shore, moved into it, and that was just his home. There's one more comic I want to talk about before we get into the hauntings, of which there are many. Mm-hmm. Brody Stevens was a comics comic. He's described by his colleagues as a comic savant. He was the opener for David Spade for a couple of years when Spade was touring, and he was also a regular warm-up comic for such shows as The Best Damn Sports Show, period, and Chelsea Handler show Chelsea Lately. He also had the distinct honor of performing in what The Hollywood Reporter called, quote, one of the most prestigious spots in the L.A. comedy scene. It was the last slot of the night at the Comedy Store, also known as the Sam Kinison spot. Mm. It's considered to be a really difficult spot to perform in because by the time you go on, the audience has already been there for like four hours. They're drunk. They're tired. So not many comedians want it or can handle it. No. But Brody Stevens crushed it. Great. Offstage, he was considered one of the kindest comics out there, always willing to mentor new performers coming up. But Brody was struggling with bipolar disorder. 
and stopped taking his medications because he felt like they were dulling his emotions. But when he stopped, he felt like he was getting too emotional. It's difficult to find the right dosage and the right combination when it comes to that stuff. And these were powerful antipsychotic medications. Brody felt that without the drugs, he was slipping, like he just wasn't as sharp, I guess. So he resumed taking them. And anytime that you're adjusting medications, it can be a difficult or a delicate time. For a bit, things seemed to be going his way, especially career-wise, which is why it came as a total shock to the comedy community when in February of 2019, he was found dead in his apartment. Mm. He had hanged himself. With the tragedy that has surrounded some of the performers at the store, along with the building's nefarious origins, the comedy store is considered one of the most haunted places in Hollywood. Past and present employees and comics have reported paranormal activity within the building, with the basement being one of the creepiest areas Mm -hmm. in the place, which makes sense if women were having unsafe abortions and the mob was murdering people down there. Unsolved Mystery shot an episode at the store back in 1996... And on it, author Lori Jacobson, who was a stand-up comedian and also worked as a waitress at the store, said that one of her jobs was to set the tablecloths on mm-hmm. all the tables and place the ashtrays on them. Were you old enough to remember when restaurant when, like you could smoke inside restaurants? Oh, absolutely. Oh, hated it. Oh, I just got used to it because my mom used to smoke. Oh, really? As a kid with asthma, I couldn't breathe if we went out to eat like I would sometimes have to get up from the table and just stand outside and hope I didn't get kidnapped while I waited for my family because I could not be in there it was awful oh my god I was in this I was in the smoking sections oh I could not (laughs) anyway so Lori and the other waitresses would set the tables leave the room to go to the next task or go Mm -hmm. get something and when they'd come back in like 30 seconds later if that All of the ashtrays were stacked up on the cart and the tablecloths were removed from the tables and folded and stacked. According to Lori, this happened more than once. Really? Like what? What? Yeah. Actor and comedian Joey Gaynor was a doorman at the store. So he was usually the last to leave because he had to shut everything down once everybody Mm -hmm. left. He recalls a time when it was about 3 a.m. Oh, the witching hour. The witching hour. He was turning off all the lights, and he noticed two candles were still lit. Like, they'd put candles on the table for a little ambiance. So he goes up, he blows out the candles, turns to leave, and as he's locking up, he notices the candles are still lit. Again. And he was like, that's weird. But he figured maybe they were just, like, still a little lit from when he blew them out. Like, he didn't blow them all the way out or something. So he blows them out again. He turns, he starts to go down the stairs... And he said, all of a sudden, it was freezing. He turned around and, bitch, those candles were still lit. Like trick candles on a cake. Joey was like, fuck it, I'm out, and left. Which, bit of safety hazard, Joey, for leaving lit candles, but okay, I get it. Another time, when Joey was closing up again, he walked through the theater or original room to shut out the lights. He said it takes a maximum of five seconds to go and shut out the lights. Mm Mm-hmm. And when he turned to walk back through the room, there were about 10 chairs piled in the middle of the aisle, which were not there before. Spooky, scary. But he never heard anything. Like, the lights he was shutting off were just around the corner from the room. So if someone had come in, he would have heard them, and he definitely would have heard if someone just started throwing chairs on top of each other. 
Comedian Lou Deck also had a freaky experience with the chairs. He said he walked into the room and there were 400 chairs piled all the way up to the ceiling. And he knew it was 400 because that's how many of the room sat. And it was Mm -hmm. like all the chairs. But moments later, the chairs were all back in place again. What? What? That's creepy. Actor and comedian Blake Clark, he's been in a ton of stuff. He's the voice of Slinky Dog in the Toy Story movies. He played Chet Hunter, Sean Hunter's dad in Boy Meets World, a role which he reprised for Girl Meets World. Uh, He was in The Waterboy, 51st Dates, a bunch of stuff. Dang. He also worked as a doorman at the comedy store and witnessed some pretty weird shenanigans. Prior to that, he did not believe in any paranormal stuff. He said he didn't believe in ghosts until he started working at the comedy store. Blake said one night he was walking through the theater to lock up when he noticed on the stage that a stool was moving across the stage by itself, like 20 feet. He said there was no one else in the room. They weren't having an earthquake. There was no explanation to how the stool was moving all the way across the stage on its own. That's terrifying. Another time, he and Joey were in that room together, and Joey starts trying to stir something up with whatever spirits were in there. Don't do that. Yeah. He starts provoking them, which I don't think ghosts don't like it when you do that. that. No, no, no. no. They're, they get pissed. Yeah, don't fuck with ghosts. But he's like, come on, ghost, show yourself. And Blake witnessed an ashtray raise itself off a table and hurl itself toward Joey. And Damn. Joey ducked, and the ashtray crashed against the wall. And Joey was like, what the hell, dude? Did you just throw that at me? And Blake was like, no. No. The ghost did. Mike Becker was in charge of the store's business matters at the Mm -hmm. time, like keeping the books. So he had an office there. And he recounts a time when there was a guy using the phone in his office. So he stepped outside it, like in a little lobby or hallway area to take a call. And as he's standing there, he saw a man who he described as wearing 1940s clothing with a tweed jacket and a hat. And the man just walked right past Mike and went into his office. So he's like, what the hell? Who does he think he is? He walks into his office, but that man wasn't there. And he asked the guy who was on the phone, hey, where'd that man go? And the guy was like, what man? Yikes. Multiple people talk about a dark presence in the basement, Mm -hmm. and they refuse to even go down there. Many say that they have heard moans and screams coming from the basement when no one is there. Well, yeah, women were having abortions. I'm sure that energy is still there. And, I mean, people were getting tortured and murdered down there. One night, Blake and Joey decided they were going to check things out. So after hours, they went down to the basement. And they're just walking around looking through some of the clutter that was down there. When suddenly this huge shadow appeared and it felt very threatening to them. Blake said whatever it was, a spirit, a demon, he didn't like it. And the two of them ran out of there. I have to say the reenactment of this incident alone is reason enough to watch the Unsolved Mysteries episode. It's amazing. I love Unsolved Mysteries. It's great. In 1982, years before the Unsolved Mysteries episode, parapsychologist Barry Taff went to the comedy store to investigate the paranormal activity. He had previously worked as a research assistant at UCLA's parapsychology lab, which I'll probably do a full episode on at some point. The lab closed in 1978, but Taff recruited his team from there to join him at the comedy store. He said when they got to the basement, he was overcome by an agonizing pain in his legs. And one of the mob's torture methods was breaking the legs of their victims. (sighs) 
That seemed to be the biggest thing that happened during their investigation. A couple of coins fell from the ceiling when they entered the dressing room, but nothing about that makes me think like, oh, this was paranormal activity. It's like some coins fell. But then in 1994, a TV series called Haunted Hollywood was being filmed at the Comedy Store, and Taft joined in to watch the taping. Standing in the back of the room were three men all dressed in suits that looked to be from the 1940s. And he was like, these guys look interesting. I'll go talk to them. But as he got closer to them, he said they just disappeared right before his eyes. That's insane. Can we believe everything Taft says? No. I don't know. I'll let you know once I do the research on that parapsychology lab because it sounds fascinating. It does. That sounds amazing. Sam Kinison, who, as I've mentioned, was a pretty domineering figure during his time at the store, always seemed to have weird, unexplainable stuff happen to him while he was performing. Before getting into stand-up, he was an evangelical preacher, and he had a sort of hyped-up, booming voice. And many believe it's because of his behavior and loud style that he stirred up so much paranormal activity. It seems like there were always audio issues or electrical problems when Sam was on stage. And people claim they heard hissing sounds over the speakers when Sam would talk into the mic. And one person said the hissing sounded like a person who was angry and going, it's him, it's him, it's him. Well, if you go from being a preacher to a comedian, I think maybe some of those demons that you were preaching against are going to follow you. Maybe. You might have cracked the code. Ah. One night, Sam got tired of all the weird stuff that would go on during his act. So at the end of his set, he addressed the ghost or whatever it was, and he said, why don't you stop playing games and show yourself? And right at that moment, the lights to the entire club went out. The whole audience gasped. Everything went dark. (gasps) The wildest story regarding Kinniston is relayed by comedian Bobby Lee. Back in the day, Sam Kinison and his best friend, comic Carl Lebove, had just moved to L.A. from Houston and couldn't afford rent. So they would sleep on the stage in the main room. Sam wasn't crashing at Crest Hill yet. I was going to say, was he peeing everywhere yet? Probably. One night, Carl and Sam are asleep on the stage. And Carl wakes up to see Sam levitating <sighs> upside down about four feet off the ground. I'll say it again. That fucker started levitating off the ground. Oh, my God. Then he was dropped on his back. And Sam and Carl believe that was a ghost named Gus who was doing that. Gus was a mobster when the club was Ciro's. Oh, so like dangling someone Mm -hmm. by their... And he... Yeah, that makes sense. On the episode of Ghost Adventures about the store, Jeff Scott, who is the longtime piano player for the club and sort of the club's unofficial historian, told Zach Bagans about a mobster named Francis, whose nickname was Gus. And during the days of Ciro's, Gus's job was to rough people up, mm-hmm. torture them, kill them, until the tables turned and the mob killed him on the property. Oh, wow. Apparently, Gus has stuck around and is very protective of the club and also pretty pissed because of being murdered and all. I get it. And people claim to have seen him standing in the back wearing a fedora, just checking things out. Bobby Lee said he pulled up to the store one day and saw a figure in the window with a glowing face, no eyes, a top hat, and his hands pressed against the window. Like, yeah. Yeah. He believes that was Gus. Yeah. This this episode of Ghost Adventures aired January 1st, 2021. 
And just a week and a half later, Jeff Scott, the piano player I mentioned, mm-hmm. died. Oh, my God. I believe his family stated it was a heart attack. But from what I've read, it seems maybe that wasn't the case. Oh, okay. With one comedian saying Jeff struggled in a similar way that Brody Stevens had. I don't think it's been officially stated what the cause of death oh, was. Okay, so it's pri- okay. Well, I mean that's private to his. Yeah, friends we'll and leave family. that there. Brody Stevens was a favorite comedian of many comics, including Jeff Ross. They were good friends, and Jeff Ross appears in the Ghost Adventures episode, and he's standing on stage talking to Zach and his crew about how the club can sometimes attract negative energy. Yeah, and he brings up Brody. And the moment he says his name, the lights on the stage flicker. And Jeff said he'd never seen that happen before. Jeff says Brody again. And when he does, this ring of red light, because the lights on the stage are like red and yellow. Oh. This ring of red light along the stage floor lights up. And they all kind of freak out a little bit. So the crew goes to speak with the store's manager and they confirmed that the power to that ring of light on the stage had been turned off. And without power, it shouldn't have come back on. The power of ghosts, Kate. It came back on. The manager said he had no explanation for it. Jay Moore is also on the Ghost Adventures episode and claims that one night he was on stage and about four... This is, this is wild. And about four minutes into his set, he realizes the audience hasn't laughed once. They were dead silent, which is death if you're a comic on stage. But Jay said not only were they not laughing, they weren't moving. He said every single person in the audience was frozen like a painting. Ew, that's scary. Some people were mid-gesture. They just weren't moving. Yeah, like that. Kevin's being a painting. And Jay thought- Whoa, what happened just now, Kate? (laughs) You're unfrozen. Welcome back. And Jay thought, am I chilling in some alternate dimension? And he shouted, get lost, ghosts. And right then, the audience burst into laughter and applause. Like suddenly everyone just unfroze. Ew. Ew, I don't like that. As Jay Moore is telling Zach Bagans about the weird things he's experienced, it is clear that he is still freaked out about it all. One of my favorite ghost stories comes from, this might be the last one I put on here, uh, comes from actor and comedian Leslie Jones. Leslie Jones of Saturday Night Live, Our Flag Means Death, a bunch of movies. She's amazing. She tells about an experience she had at the store one night after performing a set there. She went out to the parking lot and got in her car, and the employees were closing up, and she thought, I'm just going to sit here and kind of take this all in, because she'd never been there alone when everyone had left, and she just wanted to, like, have this moment. So she sits in her car, starts to smoke a joint, watches the last employee leave, and she said, all of a sudden... She felt this unexplainable push, like something was telling her, you're not supposed to be here. Like, this is our time. Please leave. And Leslie thought, I'm just high. Like, don't even worry about it. I was just going to say, like, <laughs> hey, sometimes the weed can really make you feel <laughs> she, things. She's like, I've been smoking. It's fine. I've definitely, like, had experiences where I smoked too much. And I was just <laughs> like, I have to go. <laughs> I, I have to go get down. out of here. And I just, like, run off. So she goes back to the joint and she said right then, it was like something told her to get the fuck out. Mm. So she immediately started her car and drove away. I'm going to link the YouTube video because you have to hear her tell it. Uh Oh, I bet it's amazing. 
There are so many more stories like these stories. People say they've heard ballroom music playing in the main room after hours. And then when they go to check it out, they see people in 1940s attire dancing on the stage. These stories are just the tip of the iceberg. Crazy. Tip of the iceberg. Tip of the iceberg. Top of the mountain. Are they real? Are they not real? You be the judge. Search Comedy Store Ghost Stories and enjoy the rabbit hole. Go crazy. I'm going to give you all the links to my sources in the show notes. There's also a a five-part docuseries about the Comedy Store on Showtime. Mm -hmm. Oh, I want to watch that. Did you watch it? I don't get Showtime. I do. Well, give me your fucking password. Okay. <laughs> uh, just last year, the store celebrated its 50th anniversary. And fun fact, Polly Shore is performing at the La Jolla Comedy Store this weekend. Oh. So if you're in Southern California. Head on out. Get your tickets and go. And if you have any ghost stories to share, let us know. You can do so on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at. Horrorwood Podcast. Or email them to us, especially if it's like a good juicy one that we could like read on the yeah. podcast. You can email it for one of our little misfoot tales at horrorwoodpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're feeling generous like Jeff, Luke, and Lindsay did this week, you can jump on over to Patreon at patreon.com slash horrorwoodpodcast. Before we go, Kate, yes. did I already talk about working in a comedy club on the ghost episode I did like months ago i can't maybe because i worked in a comedy club for a year right you mentioned it on this episode yeah 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 and it was an experience like like how there like there were definitely some kind of presence there because i had to work during the day on saturdays in the box office and so it was just me and the club manager who was there Mm -hmm. and i'd always hate having to walk because you had to walk from the apartment where the office was over to the club and then down uh, into it past like the main room to okay. the box office. And all the lights were pretty much turned off. Yeah. And it was just like the eeriest feeling. Ooh. I never liked having to go to the bathroom because I had to walk through the dark hallway oh. to like get to the bathroom. And I always, I always heard when I was upstairs, I could hear like an old timey phone ringing. Oh, And I nope. just never, it was, I didn't, it was, it was bad. Yikes. I liked my coworkers, but like. A lot of the the comedians I ran into were just like not nice people to be around. Oh. Um, so this it was went from of... ghosty things to just the bitch no, ass people. You, no, no, no. I'm not trying to say. I'm just saying that I can understand why there's so much kind like of negative negative energy. energy around those places because it's tough to be a stand up comedian. Oh, yeah. It's really hard. And I, I can said, under... I said, yeah. Like I know, I've Kate never tried does it. stand up all the time. Never and. <laughs> No, you know, and you're not getting paid much at all. Mm -hmm. Like you're relying on people's reactions to your sets and every audience is going to be different. So I can I can only imagine how, you know, in your head you could probably get about that. So, yeah, I think I understand how a place like that could be so haunted because of all of that energy. It's a lot swirling around in there. Yeah. Uh, don't get spooked by ghosts. Don't do murder. Don't do mobster things. But do tell us your ghost stories if you have any. And send us your stand-up routines. Oh, yes. And if you've got links to video of your stand-up routines, we need to see those. Yep. 